Hey, this is Ali Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. I'm very excited to say that on today's episode, we have Lena Dunham in conversation with Danny Strong. Yeah, this is a really cool one. I've been a huge fan of Danny's. Obviously, everybody knows how awesome Lena is. Danny is somebody whose awesomeness covers so many different bases in so many different ways. And people kind of know him, but they don't know him, including you, Elio Einhorn. You know, when we start talking about him, you're like, oh, yeah, he did, he did that. And, and he did that. He and- did so many amazing things. I first saw him, I guess, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and then again in Gilmore Girls. And then, of course, he's in Saved by the Bell, the new class. He was in Mad Men. He was in Justified. He's been in Billions and also in Lena's show in Girls. He's quite well known as an actor, Nick, but he's also made his name as a screenwriter. Absolutely. He, he broke through as a screenwriter with two movies for HBO around politics, Recount and Game Change. And then wrote a couple movies for a little franchise called The Hunger Games. And of course, while we're talking about massive success, we also have to talk about Empire, which he co-created with Lee Daniels. Right. This guy does it all. Danny's an accomplished writer, actor, and now director. Absolutely. He's just written and directed his debut feature, Rebel in the Rye, which is about the formative early years of J.D. Salinger, uh, played at Sundance, and is out now in theaters and has been getting great reviews. Now, someone else who writes, acts, and directs, Lena Dunham. Yeah, Lena is kind of a force to be reckoned with and has been since she was very, very young. Of course, Lena and I go way back. She and I were both Filmmaker Magazine interns in the last decade. I love it. Her success has been a little bit greater than mine. She's done Girls, she's done Tiny Furniture. She wrote a memoir. And in this talk, she goes into some of the other projects, some of which she has not previously announced, which is really cool. There are definitely some exclusives in this talk. There's exclusives. I won't spoil that. But yeah, she's a formidable talent. And, you know, as her character, Hannah Horvath said, the voice of a generation or a voice of a generation. (laughs) And Nick, they get into a lot in this conversation. We hear about Lena Dunham's mentors. Which included David Carn or Efron and, of course, Judd Apatow. Danny deciding after a fantastic Sundance reception to recut the new film. Right, which is a really interesting dialogue around Hollywood and failure and success and the the interplay of the three. And then, of course, on that subject, Lena talks about her early creative endeavors from the novels that she wrote. In quotes. Indeed, to some plays that she was in that, let's just say, not all of her family members were (laughs) totally receptive to. And then, of course... Danny's new movie, Rebel in the Rye. Which is excellent. It's in theaters now. You should check it out. But before you do that, check this out. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, can I ever. <laughs> where, um, where are you in L.A.? I'm in our offices. Oh, cool. That's fun. I think it's important for listeners to know that Danny Strong and I share Los Angeles offices. I think it's very cool for people to know. It's really cool. And your office has way more Emmys than our office and way more posters of successful projects than our office. <laughs> and our office has way more like sex toys, face oils, and sweaters that we were sent for free. It's much, your office is much more fun than my office for the reasons stated. But your office is much more successful than our office, so it all works out. I wouldn't go that far. But we're here, I mean, I feel like we're here to talk about many things, but mostly the fact that you just made your first feature film as a director, as a writer-director, Rebel in the Rye, and it's being beautifully received and traveling around this country, and you're having a really new experience that you haven't had in your many, many years of creative endeavors. Yes, all all accurate. It's uh, 
was wild directing my first film. I, what was it like for you? I mean, you come to it with so much more knowledge than I did, Danny, because I directed my first, I mean, I actually directed my first feature when I was 19 and 20. I did it at college and, and it was 60 minutes, which barely counts as a feature, but it did play as a feature at South by Southwest. And then my second one when I was 23 in my own house and I haven't directed a feature since then. So like you're coming to it with all the like knowledge of having been an actor, then a writer, then a writer, producer, and television show creator, then having directed TV. I was like six people in my parents' house just feeling like, how the hell did I get these people to even think this was a good idea? <laughs> just running and gunning. But I wonder like, maybe all first-time feature directors have that feeling because even though you were surrounded by like union crew and incredibly talented people, did you still have moments where you felt like you were walking to the guillotine when you woke up in the morning? Yeah, I mean, uh, even having directed multiple episodes of Empire, which was amazing that I got to do that, and I don't think I could have survived this had I not done it, it still was a completely new experience for me. I mean, there were so many things that I was now in charge of that I have literally never done before. And it was wild just starting a whole company from scratch, having not had that experience. And you're just kind of going with your instincts, right? And just, um, it's it's uh, trying to, you know, hire the best people you can. But I, yeah, I was hiring a production designer. I didn't know how to hire a production designer. I didn't know what to look for, or it was just, uh, it was just very, it was all very challenging, but I, I, I dug it. I mean, I dug being in charge of the company as opposed to being vice president, which I feel like I've been for a while. Well, by the way, everyone should know that Danny uses a lot of cool cat language, like groovy, and I dig it, that makes him feel like sort of like a beatnik. So maybe <laughs> this was the right period of time for him to take on anyway. But um, I mean, here's a question for you, which is like, You've been writing feature successful films that have been directed by other people for a very long time now. How long ago did you write your first produced feature? Um, 10 years ago, 11 years ago yeah. is when I wrote it and then it got made two years later. Which film, what was your first produced feature? I always forget the order. Uh, Recount. Amazing. Just a little film called Recount. And that was the first script I sold. Um, I like that one. I mean, it's amazing. And then I got to be at your, t you and I met at the table at the Golden Globes for Game Change. Exactly. Yeah, and that's where we became friends was from, we met there and then we had dinner with Jenny Connor and Judd Apatow like four or five months later. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we were like, you know, Danny Strong used to act and we would really like to resurrect him for a little part in the TV show Girls. And then our friendship really blossomed from there. And we've literally had sleepovers and people should know that you did punch up and fix my Democratic National Convention speech. I wouldn't say I fixed it. I would say I punched it up a little bit, but that was fun. You sat on the bed with me and wrote some of the best lines and blew my mind open. <laughs> well, and the two of you delivered it uh, beautifully. I thought it was a really neat speech, you and America. Well, thank you. But so, you know, you, you wrote your first feature for someone else to produce 11 years ago. Since then, you've been involved with things, such a diverse range of projects. Like, it's very shocking to find out that the same person who did Empire also did Game Change, also did Hunger Games. Like, you're working a lot of different mediums. So how do you decide what's the first story that you need to direct? Like, how do you know when it's time to turn your energy to that and which story? Because you've got a lot 
brewing in you? Yeah, no, that's a it's a it's a really good question. I knew that I wanted to direct about a week into shooting recount. I just loved being on the other side of the camera after spending all those years in front of the camera. And I was really fortunate that Jay Roach directed that film and was really collaborative and really wanted me around, which is very unusual. Often the director says, thank you for the script, and it'd be great if I never saw you ever again, right? It's, it's sort of the yeah. normal way things go, and he was the exact opposite. So I literally was by his side. We were kind of Batman and Robin on recounting Game Change. And so I knew that I wanted to direct really early on in, in that process with Jay. And then it was a matter of finding the right project. And I came to uh, the Salinger, the J.D. Salinger project, when I just bought a biography on Salinger that was in a bookstore. It came out in 2011, and I bought it. And then about halfway through, I thought, oh, this is an amazing story. I didn't know anything about this. All I knew was what he had written and that he was quote unquote a recluse. And that was pretty much all I knew about him. And reading about him, I was so taken by by what he went through. And I thought, I should direct that. This, this is about a writer and it's about a struggling writer and a writer trying to find his voice. And there were so many things in it that felt so... Um, so shared experience, not just between you know me and him, but me and all my friends that are writers. It just reminded me of so much of what me and so many of my friends went through. Uh, and so then I just thought, this is it. I, this, I should write this script, but I should also direct it, and this should be the first movie I make. That's amazing. And how long was the process between you writing the script, getting financing, and getting going? Well, it was it was because I optioned the book myself, the biography. So my plan was, I'm going to see if this the biographer, Kenneth Slowinski, and the book is J.D. Salinger Life. I'm going to see if he'll option me the material, and then I'm going to write it on spec and control everything. Because I just thought if I wrote it for a studio that maybe I'd get to direct it or maybe they'd kick me off it at some point. But I thought if I own it all, then that can't happen. So I optioned the book um, in 2012, I think, but then I didn't even get to write the script for another 18 months or two years because I got on the Hunger Games movies. And then that went from one movie to two movies. So then I finally wrote it. And I would say from the moment I wrote it to it getting made and released is about three years, three and a half years. So it was pretty That's fast. Wild. Yeah, it was. It's pretty fast. And then in the middle of that time period was Empire, and I I wrote the pilot to Empire, and then was on it for the first two seasons. So I was doing all these other projects in between, but um, it was it, it was I think pretty quick. Those are also two pretty wild worlds to move between Empire and JD Salinger's like early years. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it was. But um, I mean, as a writer yourself, did uh, did seeing the film, you know, like remind you of things that you'd gone through or any of the struggles you had as an artist? Yes. I mean, I think like his intense, I mean, I haven't been through the war stuff. I'll be honest about sure. that. I've never been to war. But the intensity of his struggle to like figure out what his authentic story was and like the torture of knowing you have something in you to say and not knowing exactly how to say it 
And the relationship with Kevin Spacey made me think about so many of my mentors, made me think about Judd Apatow, made me think about Jenny Connor, made me think about Nora Ephron and David Carr, like the people who show you love by telling you to kind of get your head out of your ass is like such a kind of profound thing. It's amazing that you, uh, that you count David Carr as in that category. I got really lucky. I mean, in a way, he was the first one. Like, he was a huge part of introducing me to Judd. He slipped my movie to Judd and really, like, facilitated that relationship. And he very quickly, like, he saw Tiny Furniture and literally the day after the premiere at South By, he sat down with me and it was an interview, but really it was, like, a therapy session. And after that, we were really, really close until his death. And he had this incredible bullshit meter and he wasn't afraid to tell me when he thought that I was stepping out of my zone or when I was staying too close to my zone. And I've always, it's interesting because he made me think of the Kevin Spacey character because like I came from this world of sort of like kids are coddled and give, you know, this kind of liberal world of like, we tell kids very carefully, like, all right, that wasn't the greatest thing you've ever done, but that doesn't mean you don't have worth. And David was this like tough, like Midwestern, take no prisoners, former addict, dude who you knew had held a gun before, who didn't give a shit about like soft peddling you with your feelings. And in a way that was what I needed more than anything to prepare me for what Hollywood was gonna be. Because let's just say, as you know, from many years of being a working actor and then a working writer, like Hollywood's not rocking your feelings to sleep. They're yeah. really, it's like, you're gonna get run over. And he sort of said that to me. And it was almost like he made it sound so scary that when I got here and my career started, I was like, oh, this isn't so bad. I thought like people were gonna bite me. David made it sound really bad. <laughs> but I mean, what was amazing about him and what was also amazing about Nora Ephron is, I mean, I miss them every day. When I when I went to David's funeral, and actually I missed Nora's funeral because I was directing, which her sister told me was an in quotes, very Nora thing to do. Um, I I listened to her funeral um, as, a, as an audio recording, her memorial, and I was at David's wake and then his memorial. And to see how many people felt mentored by these people who had managed to make me feel like I was like their only special child, that was really magical. And so that was something that like, I was like, wow, what a skill to make everybody feel so loved and cared for and so seen by you. And then I show up and there's like, in a great way at David's, I mean, like there's like a whole club of people who, David gave them everything. There's a whole gang of women who feel as though Nora showed them the way towards a career. And so, and there's a ton of people who feel that way about Judd. And that's always been one of my goals is to age into a woman who has a lot of people who feel like they've been cared for by me personally and professionally and to like honor Nora's legacy by having a chapter like that in my own life where I'm qualified to like bring some younger women along with me. I love it. I love it. What an amazing goal to have, uh, to not just be successful, but to send the elevator back down, as Kevin Spacey says. Uh, send the elevator back down. By the way, Kevin Spacey might make a great mentor. Let's grab him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's an acting teacher himself, which is one of the reasons why he wanted to play this part. Um, so he's really passionate about that exact thing of, uh, of mentoring people and trying to give people the opportunities that, um, that, that he had. I, I think Jack Lemmon was one of the first people that really took an interest in Kevin 
And it just meant That's so much amazing. to him. Yeah, right? You know, something that you've been so open about, which I love because I feel like in Hollywood, we do this incredible thing of like everybody wants to, Hollywood is sort of built on failure challenge, building yourself back up, rethinking things, turning them on their head. You know, I've had failed articles and failed pilots and said insane things and blah, blah, blah. But like, we all try to keep it really hidden as if like success breeds more success. And you were really open about the fact that after you went to Sundance with your movie, you made the choice to re-edit because you didn't think it was at its most successful place. And I wanted to know, I mean, it takes so much self-confidence to make that choice and even more self-confidence to be open about why you're making that choice. And so I wanted to ask you a little about that process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sundance was so confusing for me because the film got a standing ovation and then Twitter, which doesn't always happen at Sundance, and then- No, I've ne- never been in a film with, I was on the Sundance jury and not one of the 18 films I saw got a standing ovation. Yeah, the audience really took to it. And then Twitter uh, went nuts for the movie and uh, non-critic journalists were calling it the, the movie of the festival. And there was just this, um, just this outpouring of love for it. And these weren't people I knew. These weren't shills that I was having tweeting on my yeah. behalf. Uh, and I These just- These weren't liberal plants. Exactly, exactly. And uh, I just thought, uh, I thought we did it, we did it. And then the reviews started coming in and they were pretty negative and hostile at times, oddly hostile, to be honest with you. And then I started talking to people and I just realized that there are elements of this story that aren't coming across clear enough and that there are elements of his character arc that aren't clear enough and one of them was the PTSD story and the fact that so yeah. much of the, the, what you know, inspired me to make the film was the fact that The Catcher in the Rye was written by a veteran who had been institutionalized after the war. And to me, it explains so much, not just about the book, but about what happened to him after the book and why he ended up meditating in Cornish for the rest of his life. And uh, the fact that that wasn't clear uh, seem it felt that the story wasn't um, being told to its fullest extent. And more simply, I just thought I could make it better. And I just thought I can make this movie better um, regardless of the critical response or what I'm hearing from people. I just know that I can improve it. And so I want to improve it. And to be honest with you, no one wanted me to touch it. Um, IFC Films bought the movie out of Sundance and they tested it and it tested very well and they loved it and just didn't want me to make any changes. So it was this, and I was rabid about it because I was convinced I could improve it significantly. I just had these ideas of what I wanted to do and I was convinced they were right. So IFC agreed to let me make changes uh, with the caveat that I had to test as high as the Sundance version. And which I thought was completely fair. It's not as if I can deliver a movie that tested lower to them after they bought a movie, right? I can't recut it and, yeah. and test lower. So, um, so I recut it. I only had two weeks, and about eight days into the recut, I watched it with my editor, and I just we we watched a, a, a version of it, and uh, I just turned to him and I just said, "That's the movie, right?" And he went, "Yeah, that's the movie." And then we fist bumped, 
and then he did a more did a little bit Good. more cleanup work, <laughs> and and I thought I thought I did it. I thought this is this is it. This is the the movie that I wanted to be, and then we had to test it again, which was incredibly nerve wracking, um, and then I tested ten points higher. Like I crushed the Sundance test score, uh, and it's actually the highest. Oh, amazing! Yeah, it's the highest testing movie I've ever done. So it was uh, it was a wonderful feeling, and uh, and then we released this version. It was one of those things where I was just conv- I just had these ideas and I had to see them through, and I felt that I owed it to um, Nicholas Holt, uh, who's been such an amazing partner on this. And I just wanted to make as good a movie as I could for him, but also to Salinger, to the subject matter. I just yeah. thought he deserved the best movie that I could possibly make. Um, and and this was, you know, for my budget and my shooting schedule. And I, I think this is, you know, I'm, I'm really happy with the film. In many ways, too, it's the film is the film now. And I don't know, maybe a thousand people saw it at Sundance, but there's this whole new film, and this is the film that's going to exist from here till however long people want to see it. And at the end of the day, that that was what mattered to me the most is to just that's have so this great. version on record <laughs> as as the as the first film I made, and and um, you know how the chips fall, they fall. Well, I forget who said it about writing. Like someone who's some really famous writer whose name I'm forgetting said, and I'm paraphrasing, like. There is no finishing a story. You only die. Yeah, yeah, right. And I feel that way. No, it's perfectly said. Like, I feel that way all the time. Like, I'm finishing a book of short stories right now, and I'm like, I don't know that I'll know that these are finished. I only know that I'll know I have to hand them in because I was paid. Mm -hmm. Like, that's all because I could literally tweak it and your life experience changes and you can shift it for the rest of your life. And there's something kind of great about the, like, that's one of the reasons that I love working in TV is that you are like forced to deliver every week and you can't tinker for too long. It just, it's going, like it's time to shoot and it's going. I like love that sort of like, it turns you into a little bit of an Olympiad writer. Yeah. Well, you see, you're jumping from so many different uh, outlets, right? I mean, you did Girls and you wrote the memoir now you're writing a book of short stories. Are these fiction or nonfiction? They're fiction. They're fiction. And I started writing them right before my last book came out. Like I was sort of so anxious about the memoir coming out that I needed to turn my attention to something. But I was so sick of my own stories and my own voice. And so the voices of all these sort of other women and the stories of all these other women started coming out of me. There's no non-hippie way to say it. And that's, so yeah. So I started the the book in the summer of 2014 and I thought it was going to be a novel. And then the the story that I thought was going to be a novel ended up being the a novella, which is sort of the longest story in the book. And then there's 13 other stories which have happened over the last, you know, three and a half years, three years. Mm-hmm. And it's just been, it's actually been very profound experience to write fiction and to like unmoor myself from my own life because in so many ways girls was about me and in so many, and then the memoirs about me and like to be able to lose yourself in your writing again, which is something you know well, because you don't write like things that are, I'm sure you're in your characters, but it's not as a parent. And so I'm not saying I'm writing like, you know, groundbreaking stories about foreign policy here, but they aren't my story and that feels good. Mm -hmm. And then do you have 
a preference when you're jumping around to all these different things between acting, directing, writing, writing nonfiction, writing fiction? Is there something that you feel most connected to? I mean, I always feel, and I wonder if, I'm really curious to ask if you feel this way. I always feel like I'm a writer and everything comes from writing. Like I considered myself a writer first and I started acting because I wanted to properly express my stories. I started directing because I wanted control over my stories, but like writing and that experience, like to me, it's the closest thing I have. Like, you know, I've always dealt with anxiety. I've always dealt with like, you know, certain mental health challenges that so many of us deal with. And to me, writing, when you're really in it with a pro- process that you love is like this kind of like freedom and meditation. Like I don't feel anxiety, I don't feel pain. And then I can really only successfully, per- like I love acting for other people if I love them. I know that's kind of how you feel now that you're writing and directing primarily, but I really most successfully can perform words that I wrote and I really can most successfully direct words that I wrote. And so that feels like the fountain from which everything else springs. I would be so curious about your answer to that question. Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Um, I think that for me as a writer, it's the purest form of my creative energy. It's the purest outlet for it where A, there's a simplicity to it because it's literally just me and my computer. and I'm getting across or expressing or playing or whatever that that is uh, that I'm referring to as artistic energy, I'm just getting to do it. As opposed to as an actor, which I was for 15 years, uh, just a pounding the pavement trying to get any job I could actor, I could only do it when someone hired me to do it. And then yeah. when you're directing, you're there with about uh, you know anywhere from 20 to, to 150 other people right? It's, it's this massive enterprise that involves a ton of people. And what I love about directing is I love being in charge of um, a team of artists, just all these different talented people, all of us working together uh, on trying to bring a story to life. You know, the actors and the designers and the crew. And, and I really, I really dig it. Um, I love it. I always say it's like summer camp for adults and, yeah. and you get to be the boss of your summer. You get to be the director of the summer camp. Yeah, yeah. And it was the difference between, you know, doing the movies with Jay Roach and Lee Daniels and then getting to do it myself. I loved being in charge at the end of the day and not hoping that they would do this or that or trying to convince them to do this or that. And quite often we'd be on the same wavelength but sometimes we weren't and they had the final say at the end of the day. So it was great to have that final say. I felt very comfortable um, in that position, but it does all stem from the writing, doesn't it? I mean, it's really the blueprint of everything. It's um, very challenging, I find, but it, it is, I think, the most rewarding and I seem to have the most fun. I think I'm the happiest when I'm in my writing schedule which is just you know having breakfast, going somewhere, getting caffeinated up, and then working for about four or five hours after about an hour of screwing around on the internet. And, uh, and then when I'm done and I feel, I usually feel really good, like, like I've achieved something. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, you know, the long answer short, it's basically, it's the same as, as you. Yeah, it's a really magical thing. And I wonder, do you remember the moment that you decided that you were going to start writing? Because you, when did you start acting? As a teenager, right? Well, yeah, I was in doing high school theater. And then I had an agent throughout high school. 
but I didn't ever book anything. So it was sort of more of a discouraging, but I was committed to acting. I knew I wanted to be an actor. And so I was a theater major in college. And then I had a, got another agent and still couldn't book anything. Um, and then finally started working when I graduated. It was six or seven years of auditioning before I really ended up getting any work. And then pretty quickly I started supporting myself as an actor. Um, by the time I was, I think, 23. And I didn't have to have a day job, which was sort of the dream, right? I mean, that's what you go to college to be a theater major, and now you're getting paid to be an actor. And it was exciting at first, and then I found that I was really unhappy because I, I was working a lot, but it still felt as if I was always starting from scratch. And a friend of mine uh, who was an actor that I was constantly up against, it would frequently come down to me or him, and that's how we became friends. We exchanged numbers so that we could tell each other if one or the other got the part because the worst part is not knowing if you get the part. So the second you totally. find out you don't, you're disappointed, but then you can just move on as opposed to that in between where you're kind of dying for an answer. And his name's Michael Bacall, by the way. And he sold a script and for a quarter of a million dollars. And I was so jealous of him because instead of going on these commercial and voiceover and guest star auditions with me, he was meeting with studio executives and famous producers. And um, I just was really jealous. And then he started um, pushing me to write. He just said, you gotta do this. You really gotta do this. And, um, and then there were a few movies that came out right at that time, uh, Election and um, uh, Swingers. And I just was really inspired by those two films as a writer. So I just thought, okay, I'm going to do what Michael did, and I'm just I'm going to write a script, and I'm going to write a script for me to star in. And then I just started that process. And I think I was 25 or 26. And Michael Bacall has gone on to he wrote uh, the 21 Jump Street movies, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, Project X, and just as a very very oh, wow. successful uh, screenwriter. That's amazing. And what you, what about you on that? I mean, what it, it seems to me when I think of you, I think of this teenage prodigy who was starting to do this stuff at just so much younger than anyone else I possibly know as far as writing and directing. And um, what was there was there a moment or something that you just thought, okay, I'm going to do it. Well, I'm going to answer that question. First, I do want listeners to know that Danny has had important pivotal roles in every show that matters to millennial women, including Saved by the Bell, The New Class, Gilmore Girls, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So that's a pretty important factoid is that while he may uh, dumb down his own success, that to a woman my age, Danny Strong is probably the world's most successful actor. <laughs> well, thank you, Lena. And puts all other actors in the dumpster with his incredible success. <laughs> I wouldn't go that you know, far, but. Well, considering the material that you were doing. Yeah. So this is going to sound really goofy. I was like one of those kids. Like my dad always says, like I was very precocious in some ways and very naive in others. Like I was constantly writing and thinking and reading and having big thoughts about Lolita or whatever, but also not having friends and like barely kissing anyone until I was 20. Like it was a bit of a dichotomy. But when I was in fourth grade, I remember saying to my mom, I want to be a fashion designer when I grow up. 
writing is my passion, but it's just a hobby. I like had this entire thought. I was like, I don't want to ruin it by making it a career. It's just a hobby. And I would come home every day after school. And I really didn't have friends at school. I was really a pretty isolated kid. And I would work on what I called novels, which now looking back were like each 12 to 15 pages. Like I would run out of steam pretty quickly, but like there was one about like a boy in India who lived in a ruins, who was almost died of a snake bite and was saved. There was one about like a woman who was hiding her identity at a Victorian manor and she was actually a pauper, but she was pretending to be like a, like they were pretty derivative, but I was extremely proud of them. And I had one teacher, Kathy Ellis, who was an amazing like third and fourth grade teacher who really honored my writing and encouraged it. And then I remember one day I was like probably 11 and it was like, I was sitting down in my mom's studio. We lived on the fourth floor of a building in Soho and my mom's studio was on the second floor. And that's where our new Macintosh computer was, our family computer where I did my writing. And I remember literally just thinking like, this could be your job. This could be your job. And from then on, I just always identified as a writer. It was just how I always identified. And so That to me is part of why I found watching your movie so profound was like this idea of somebody who identified so strongly as a writer, but was fighting so hard to find their truth. And I just thought like the fact that you were able to actually depict the writing process in a way that was cinematic and complex and interesting and the way that you were able to make the entire thing feel like the writing process, but also dramatic. And again, I keep using this word cinematic and then get these incredible performances that didn't feel like this sort of sweaty, stiff performance of writerness, but like a really natural and truthful look at what that process is. And not to mention like, you know, the beautiful production design and the beautiful direction and the fact that you wrote complex female characters, et cetera, et cetera. But like, for me, thinking of myself as a writer first, that's one of the reasons why the movie is so stunning to me is because it's making that process visible to other people in a way that is like actually really engaging and not just, and like, you know, we always had so much trouble on girls. Like Hannah was a writer, but we never showed her writing because how could you? And so the way that you managed to dramatize the writing process to me is like one of many great achievements in the film. Oh, thank you, Lena. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And especially coming from you, it's been um, it's been really wonderful, the response to the film from writers. Just the fact that so many writers and so many of my heroes, and I definitely put you um, high on that list, have just taken to the film um, I got to say, I am, I am your biggest fan. I just, uh, when we were doing girls, I, cause I basically, I basically had stopped acting and, uh, and then you asked me to play that part and it was so much fun, but then watching you on set, you, you know, go from acting to directing to writing in between scenes, it was this, it was so inspiring creatively and I hadn't wanted to act for so long. And watching you, I was like, I want to write my own show now and be like Lena and star in a show. And it was literally, <laughs> so I, nice. I swear to God, I was like, I want to do that. That is that is amazing. And it faded for me within a couple months. <laughs> I like, lost my interest in it. But it was one of those things where it was your creative energy is, is so inspiring. And it was one of those things where when girls first... Um, 
when it first started airing, it was it was really thrilling, right? Because it was this new voice and it was so real uh, and authentic to that experience. And the fact that it was written and directed and starring someone, you were 23, right? Or 24? 24 when it when we shot the pilot. When you shot the pilot. And then, you know, there was, it, it sort of, that fact, which popped at first and then sort of got drowned out with the quote unquote controversy that was going on with the show, with the sex and the nudity. And it was, it's sort of like the dialogue shifted. And I just remember thinking, wait, 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 people, a 24 year old is doing all this and it's probably one of the most interesting, and it was my favorite show um, on the air. Uh, and it was the the achievement of it was nice. was so staggering. And the fact that the show stayed so good the entire run of the show. I mean, we're I, I did Empire, and I was heavily involved the first two seasons, and it was so hard making season two pop after season one. Um, and I'm not even working on the show anymore. And I have such, I commend the staff for what they're doing, but for, for you to keep that level up, how, how were you able to do that? Firstly, you had to do a lot more episodes than we did. We only, we did like 12 one year instead of 10 and it almost killed us. But I also like had these amazing collaborators in Jenny and Judd. And then I also had a staff who really understood what the mission of the show was and really gave themselves to it. So anytime I was flagging, which was Often I was buoyed by whether I was dealing with emotional stuff or health stuff or just fatigue around telling my stories. I was like buoyed by these people who really I felt like cared about the show. I mean, no one could care about it as much as we did as like, you know, creators and showrunners, but who cared almost as much as we did, like as close as another human could come, like as much as another person can love your baby. Yeah, And that was really amazing. And then also constantly like, you know, dealing with our own ADD by challenging ourselves all the time and trying to make these mini movies and trying to bring in people who, I mean, part of casting you was like, Danny Strong inspires us. We want to be around him. Let's put him in the show. Like it was completely com- and totally self-serving. And like, I mean, <laughs> I, love I have to say like, we've developed such, I mean, Jenny and I, like you're the first person we want to send any piece of writing to. Like we literally have to stop ourselves all the time because we're like, we've abused Danny quite enough. Like you are- Oh, anytime. You're such an important collaborative force for us and such a like, you know, it was such an awesome, like unexpected thing that you came along and became such an important part of our friend and creative universe. And then to watch you go from super successful political writer guy to super successful biopic guy to super successful teen action movie guy, to guy who created unexpected, I mean, no one like looks at you and goes like, that guy created Empire, like that was a special surprise. (laughs) And then to see you then like have this other first, which is making your movie, like it's just beautiful. And I guess like my big question is like, what do you wanna do next? Like you've conquered so many realms what is your dream for what the next five years of your professional life looks like? Or are you just like rocking and rolling in this release moment? No, that's a really good question. Um, as far as what I want to do next, um, I'm not completely sure. Um, I, you know, we, I have this TV company in which we share offices. Um, yep. Uh, which are, I would love those offices. That was the perfect situation. So, so trying to get some cool shows on the air. And um, I'm also been really, really want to break into theater 
and am writing multiple stage musicals. So I'm writing three different so cool. stage musicals right now. I'm writing the books to them, not the music or the lyrics, which I have no skill set for on any level. So that is, because um, I live in New York and I'm a, I'm a huge theater person. I was a stage actor first and foremost. And um, the it's, it's, just, it's just a world that I've been really uh, wanting to break into and it's very challenging these shows they, they it takes the years literally takes years for them to get going uh and then i just need to figure out the next movie i'm going to write and direct and i have no clue what that is and i'm not so worried about it because i'm still releasing this movie and this has been a very intense experience so it's really yeah. focusing on the tv company stuff and um the theater stuff for the immediate the immediate future that's so exciting. And I was lucky because I did my first a workshop of my first play and I got to have you there and literally hearing your laugh in the audience was the best thing that's ever happened <laughs> to me. So please know that every workshop you do, I will be in the audience and I will be laughing and cheering and having whatever emotion you tell me to have through your words. <laughs> I love it. Well, that play is fantastic. What's going on? I mean, I loved it. You're and very it was sweet. so hard to pull that off. I mean, I forgot playwright in the list of stuff you do. It's pretty crazy, Lena, how you just jump from this to this to this to this. You're lovely. You know, for I always rush everything. I'm always like, I want to get it out. I want to get it out into the world. But I realize the kind of great thing is like theater moves at a really slow pace. And so like it feels good to do a workshop and then just like let it marinate. I'm working on the second play and what is a trilogy. I'm hoping to workshop that in June and like, really giving it its time. Like I was telling my boyfriend who worked in, you know, pop music where you write a song and then the next week it's like number one on the charts or whatever. And I mean, in his world, not in everybody's world, mm -hmm. he's like a weirdo prodigy. Yeah, crushing it. He's crushing it in a, you know, an almost shocking way. And I get to say that because I'm not him, I'm just his lover. <laughs> but anyway, I was telling him like, yeah, the play will maybe go on in 2019 or 2020. And he was like, that's so far away. And I was like, that's how plays work. Like people take years with them and workshop them with different casts and learn about them and work and change them again after they've been on stage. And like, that's what's so exciting to me about it is the slowing down and the intimacy of what theater can provide. And it's like a kind of academic exercise in a different way. I don't know if you've been finding that. Yeah, I mean, it's been, I, because I've been doing books to musicals, they're their own unique challenge. But the the dragging on, I, I wouldn't even call it dragging on. It's it's sort of what you said, right? This marinating process. Um, and it's uh, it's one of those things where it's, you're not getting paid, right? These things are, they go on forever. So you're literally just doing them because you just really want to do them. Um, and you're just excited about telling these stories. Uh, what was it that made you decide, okay, I'm going to sit down and write a play now? Well, it was really, you know, I haven't announced the project yet, but I'm happy to. Oh, did I screw this up for you? Really, no, it's not a big deal at all. I mean, the project is something that I'm doing in collaboration with St. Anne's Warehouse, and it's something, and I'm adapting a specific playwright's work, who I'll talk more about at some point. But for me, it was a passion for a specific and not particularly well-known playwright and wanting to make her work accessible to a new audience. And then suddenly I realized I didn't just want to produce her work. I wanted to find a new way into her work and that meant adapting it. And as you know, cause you've done adaptations of books and things like that, like 
adaptations have this incredible gift, which is like they give you material, but there's also this incredible challenge, which is you have to decide when you're going to leave the material behind and just own it. And so that's been kind of the most beautiful part of working on these plays. And for me, I had always wanted to work with St. Anne's Warehouse in some capacity. It's like my favorite theater in New York and mere blocks from my house. And I went to St. Anne's School, which was founded close to St. Anne's Warehouse and where, you know, St. Anne's Warehouse was sort of our spiritual sibling. And so for me, like St. Anne's Warehouse is the equivalent of like getting to be on Broadway, like the most amazing nonprofit theatrical experience. And that's like... I feel really proud to be just even developing a project with them. And I feel really lucky that I have, you know, agents and a partner like Jenny and people in my life who don't go like, are you insane? You want to do a play, but are like, yeah, we're going to support you in whatever way. Cause this process has involved me traveling, you know, across the globe to get the rights to the play and connecting with all kinds of new people. And I've needed support from the people around me. And, you know, if you're in Hollywood, a lot of people have only people in their life who want them to pursue money projects and anything else they kind of turn a blind eye to. And I'm so lucky that everyone's like, we understand that if that was Lena's life, she would lose her mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I love how enamored you are with the St. Anne's Warehouse. I feel the same way. Um, it's St. Anne's Warehouse and the public and some of these New York theaters, they're to me the coolest of the cool. And uh, what I what I strive for. That's how I feel. I'm like, it makes me feel like the ultimate hipster. And like, I also just like, you know, I also did. I was a stage actor in high school, albeit one who never, ever got a part. I was always literally like the bouncing ball in the background, the non-speaking. We did like a Commedia dell'arte play in which like I played like a fat sidekick who had no lines and was like had a uh, was wearing like padding and a ball, a beach ball in my stomach and was like supposed to go like shh to the audience. Like my mom literally walked out halfway through the play, which is one of my favorite things my mom did when I was in high school was like. Literally, she'd be like, I didn't like it. What? Like, she refused to play the parent game of, like, staying through a kid's play. She was, like, she was truly, like, engaging with them like she was attending Broadway and had paid for a ticket. (laughs) It's my favorite. So she left several plays, and she also left the production of Charles Mee's Big Love that I was in my freshman year of college. She really did it her way. Mm -hmm. But, um... I just loved that process. Like, I just remember thinking being in tech was like the coolest thing that could happen to you. I loved every part of it. Yeah. That's so exciting about you doing theater. And I feel very excited to attend your Broadway openings in gowns upon gowns. Fingers crossed we can get that going. So let me ask, because everyone wants to know, Lena, when um, are you going to do another TV series? Is there going to be a follow-up to Girls? And you don't have to answer. No, you can I'm dodge thrilled it if you to like. answer. Jenny, Connor, and I are deep in the process of we're making something. I mean, we haven't started shooting and we're hoping that that will happen soon, but we are deep in the process of developing and writing something. And we are hoping, if all goes according to plan, to return to your TV screens next year. Well, if things don't go according to plan, then I will be... Uh, begging to represent Allstate Insurance. <laughs> well, this is uh, this is very exciting news. And uh, whenever you're ready, I'd love to read it. Oh, that makes us feel really good because literally the other day, Jenny was like, should we send it to Danny? And I was like, we've abused Danny quite enough. I don't feel that way ever. So anytime that you have something you want me to read, send it over. And you're a very fast reader with brilliant notes. So, and I'm like a fourth grade level reader who takes six years. <laughs> but um, 
I love you like crazy, Danny. I feel so lucky we got to do this. And I feel really lucky that the world gets to see your movie in the form that you wanted it to exist. Oh, thank you. Well, the fact that it spoke so much to you is uh, just the wonderful writer that you are, uh, means the world to me. And thank you for doing this. This was so much fun. It was so much fun. Thank you for being my friend. I love you. I love you too, Lena. And uh, I'll see you soon at the office. Bye, mister. See you soon. Lena Dunham, Danny Strong, Rebel in the Rye is out in theaters now. Thank you so much to these guys for doing this talk. Very, very fun and very informative. It really was. And Nick, this week we're releasing two TalkHouse podcast episodes. Listeners, tune in Thursday to hear Public Enemy's Chuck D with Rage Against the Machine's Tom Morello. They're going to be talking about the history of protest music and their new band, Prophets of Rage. It's another really good one. And of course, while you're immersing yourself in all things TalkHouse, Go find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel, where you can find full video episodes recorded live at the flagship Sono store. We continually update it. Most recently, we have ASAP Ferg in conversation with Andrew Carmelini as part of a collaboration we did with Food Republic. We have Kyle Mooney talking with Taryn Killam, David Cross, Jean Grey, and Fab Moretti from The Strokes. A whole awesome back catalog of great conversations there. And of course, don't forget talkhouse.com. Every day, new written pieces by filmmakers, musicians on the world and the world of creativity. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, rate and review. Every time you do, it helps someone find the show. Absolutely. For now, I'm still Nick Dawson. I'm still Ellie Einhorn. This podcast was recorded by Mark Yoshizumi and Susan Vallett. And mixed and co-produced by Mark Yoshizumi. We love him. We love him. Until next time. Till then. When we were hanging out at the beach, I was like, Maybe this is like when Scorsese and Spielberg and everybody hung out in Malibu, <laughs> minus the cocaine. Yeah. And we had actresses. cheese, though. <laughs> uh, we have so much cheese. <laughs>